coming up on this edition of the Reenactors Corner podcast, we take a deep dive into the world of World War II German machine guns and ask if you would take a $40,000 original MP44 to a reenactment. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Reenactors Corner podcast. This is Chris here again. Um, Before we get started today, I just want to say thank you to everybody who has signed up to support us with Patreon. Really means a lot. And without your support, we wouldn't be able to keep doing this podcast. I want to uh, say special thanks to our new supporters since the last episode, Brendan, Ian, and Kyle. Thank you very much, guys. Um, If you're listening to this, when this comes out, this is your last chance to get on the Patreon list in time to get uh, on my Christmas card list for 2021. Um, So for this episode, we have a special guest. He's been on the podcast before. Uh, Happy to have him back on, Casey Hogan. Thanks for coming back on the podcast. Great to be back. Uh, Thank you. So what we're going to talk about today is we're going to be talking about machine guns in reenacting, which is something that I know you have special expertise and experience in. Um, why don't you just tell us a little bit about what your background is, um, how you kind of came to know about this stuff, how you got interested in it, and what your what your experience with it is. So just to start off, uh, I'm in the you know the U.S. military for those people who aren't in the U.S. and uh, I'm actually an armorer, so that's like the people who uh, fix and maintain weapons. And I'm actually going through uh, the military's version of like a gunsmith school uh, where armorers maintain and uh, diagnose where gunsmiths will fix stuff. Uh, or not fix stuff, but pretty much create. They create from nothing. It's a lot more in depth. Um, but I've always had an interest in firearms and weapons, uh, especially historical. Uh, I own quite a few myself. And. Um, just over the years, I've done a lot of research on stuff because, you know, with my passion for World War II and reenacting, um, the firearms was also something, uh, that drew me in and with reenacting, things don't always go as they're planned because these guns are not meant to fire blanks. They're meant to fire live rounds. So, um, I've done a lot of research and actually been able to diagnose and help a lot of people with my skills that I've learned through the military. That's great. And from a reenactment perspective, of course, you have uh, been portraying a machine gunner. You've done it at various different events, kind of in different settings, um, you know, and so you kind of have a, a sort of broad experience with using these things in reenactment, too. Uh, yeah, that's correct. I uh, I have an MG42 that's a blank firing only non-gun, or as people know, a B-Fong. I actually had a gunsmith do it. Uh, it was an original kit. Uh, gun that was cut up several years ago and made into it completely uh, never can be fired again in live rounds but it shoots only blanks but with that I've had issues with it and I know many many people who have real machine guns that are legal to own or blank firing guns as such as myself that 
typically don't like to shoot blanks, uh, or reliably, shall I say. So I've done a lot of research on that just because it's uh, a big, big interest of mine. So, um, and I, it kind of ruins the reenactment as far as operating these guns, uh, you know, when they don't work. You mentioned the legality aspect. You know, I think it's important to just come out and say um, laws with regard to machine guns are are like local. Maybe they are based on the country that you live in or even your region. Like we have different laws from state to state in the United States. Um, Casey, neither you nor I are uh, lawyers, and we're not going to be giving out any legal advice. So we're just going to be talking in pretty general terms about these things. And um, obviously, there's factors of what's going to be legal in the area where you plan to reenact, but that's not something that we're going to be able to get into today. So, um, you know, when I think about, I guess, I guess the first thing I think about with regard to machine guns and reenacting is why are they important? Why do you have to have these things? Um, and of course, the the real answer here is that even on the like lowest level for, for example, an infantry unit, you really can't portray uh, an infantry squad without having a machine gun because it was so fundamental to World War II German tactics that it's just, I think it's an absolutely indispensable thing for a reenactment unit impression. You know what I mean, Casey? Absolutely. I mean... Uh, from the First World War to the Second World War, the uh, the advancement in machine gun technology and warfare um, kind of shaped the way World War II was, you know, how the combat was. And, you know, from the German uh, doctrine of warfare where the whole infantry platoon is surrounded or the squad is surrounded by the machine gun where they their sole purpose is uh, the machine to, you know work with the machine gun, uh, and the way they use that. And then any other country, um, you know, had the machine gun several different roles and it was, you know, it was really important, obviously, like you said, Chris, and, uh, you know, I, you, you can't have one without the other, in my opinion, with, you know, with, with World War II reenacting. Sure. I mean, I think specifically, um, from like a reenactment perspective, if you are going to be portraying infantry or really any kind of frontline combat unit, um, there's just there's just like no way to do it without having the machine gun represented in one way or another, um, because it's it's just like this building block thing. Um, and I mean, are there really ways for a frontline unit to present a realistic portrayal without including machine guns at all? I don't think so. Um, you, you know, the German the German infantry unit always had machine guns based around it. Whether it doesn't matter what unit or what or what like company that it was, whether or what section it was where it had mortars or whatever else, there was always a machine gun that was at the base of the unit. And um, in order for you to portray it, like you you need to have that machine gun because if you're going by historical accuracy, you the 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 squad, platoon, company, or whatever, can't really operate without their machine machine guns. I can remember when I started reenacting um, th- years ago, the availability of things like beefongs and semi-auto builds was a lot more limited. And, of course, full automatic transferable machine guns were, were less expensive years ago, but they were still very, very expensive. And so... 
um, my group really struggled to field the amount of machine guns that a group of our size should be fielding. So I asked my unit commander, I said, well, wouldn't it, couldn't it be possible that we're representing a squad where the machine gun was lost or the machine gun was damaged or whatever? And his response was basically, look, if you were in a squad and the machine gun was lost or damaged, your squad would be broken up and you guys would be sent basically to to other units that did have the machine gun because without the machine gun, you were like combat ineffective in an infantry setting. You know, it's funny you say that because, uh, so one of the things I research is, um, I like to read a lot of memoirs and, uh, like combat memoirs. Obviously there's some stuff cause it might be, uh, romanticized by the, by, you know, the person who wrote it. But, um, I remember recalling reading the book, uh, blood red snow by, uh, I think it's Gunter Kosherek. Might have mispronounced that, but um, essentially he was a machine gunner, uh, and he was outside the dawn in, I think it was forty end of forty two, forty three around Stalingrad, obviously, and uh, the Russians the the dawn was frozen, and the the Russians stormed through, uh, and with you know their T thirty fours and everything else, and uh, they were in a trench in a winter position with snow and everything, and the Russians had broken th- through so fast, and he was a, he was the machine gunner. He picked up his gun off the uh, tripod, the Lafette, and started running with it towards the dawn because they were crossing the frozen lake to the other side to get away from the Russians. And he ended up throwing the machine gun, throwing the uh, all of his field gear, but you know because it was slowing him down, he was seeing a lot of soldiers run faster. And you know, eventually, once they hit the other side of the dawn, not many survived from his group. Uh, you know, they reorganized him and put him in. You know. A platoon with a machine. They had one machine gun, and that was it. And uh, I don't know. It was just you know it, that that statement's very true. That's cool insight. Um, let's talk a little bit about what are the options for a person or a reenactment group who are looking to have some kind of a machine gun to add realism to their events. I think that the the options really are uh, non functional dummy guns. Uh, B-fongs, which are the blank fire only uh, non-guns like like the one that you have, um, semi-auto builds, and then of course the real live full auto weapons, just as they were during World War II. Um, I have a couple of dummy machine guns that I use. I find them to be great props for a lot of our events. If we do immersion events where we're not actually fighting against an opponent, or if we're doing a public display, um, I find these dummy guns to be really useful. I, I have in fact used dummy machine guns in the past at tacticals, um, but that is really, I found that to be a tough thing. I mean, it. I think it adds from a visual perspective when you're marching out that you've got the machine gunner behind the squad leader as it should be. But of course, as soon as uh, the shooting starts, you basically have to immediately die or run away because you can't actually use the thing in the manner in which it was intended Um you know what? What's your take on that, Casey? Um, so let's start off with dummy guns. I think dummy guns are uh, a great thing to have for collecting purposes, and then, uh, like you said, uh, for you know displays or immersion events. Like you can, if we just if you do an immersion event that you decide to do, I don't know, like a five kilometer hike, uh, you know, a forced march, you could have the dummy gun, which will still. Uh, you know, give you the experience that, you know, you're carrying a, 
a very heavy weapon um, and give you that same immersive immerse experience. And then um, as far as like a, a tactical, um, it really depends on your impression because, uh, you know, the German machine gunners were, you know, indoctrinated from the very beginning once they started learning their job. Um, about, you know, maintenance on the machine guns and everything else. So, like, have, being at a tactical where, you know, your machine gun doesn't work because it broke, yeah, it, it's plausible if, you know, it caught shrapnel or something like that. But um, as far as, like, a, a tactical, I wouldn't... I would try to stay away from that. Um, just my opinion. Um, unless the tactical was built around, uh, you know blown up machine gun nest or something like that. I don't know. Um, and then with B-Fungs, B-Fungs uh, are a fairly new thing for the most part. Uh, there's this company called SS Room that had started the whole B-Fung craze with a MP40 that was shooting blanks backwards. And the whole thing is a B-Fung, a blank firing only non-gun. Uh, it shoots a proprietary round, a blank that doesn't exist in a real like bullet and uh it can never be shot with a real bullet and if you tried to and were somehow successful in making the bullet go into the barrel the chamber it would blow up it'd be you know essentially a bomb at that point um and with with i'm pretty fortunate where i started reenacting in t 2011 where this is you know, started to get more popular in companies like, uh, what is it, Dunright Armory and Indianapolis Ordnance in the United States. Uh, they really have, uh, you know, you know, improved reenacting because they've, you know, have these items that, are, you know, you don't need any license to own and they're somewhat affordable. Um, not nearly as much money as a legal machine gun within the United States goes for. Um, but on the flip side, a lot of people don't realize when you when you get these types of guns, whether they're real machine guns or beefongs or whatever else, uh, you know, an army, the the German army or whatever, uh, you know, nation you're portraying, they they had the money to feel to you know issue the ammo out. But as a reenactor, you have to pay for that yourself. And for me, uh, I'm shooting about 80 cents around U.S. dollars. And through a blank firing MG42 that I've tuned to shoot 1,200 rounds a minute, uh, you know, you're about you're going to shoot about 300 dollars worth of blanks at a, a long reenactment. Um, and then, as far as the so you have. Um, Another category is you have semi-auto uh, machine guns. So, kind of sounds weird, but it's uh, essentially semi-auto for you people that, or the people out there that don't know much about firearms and weapons. It shoots, you know, one every time you pull the trigger, it shoots. But it's not like a machine gun where you hold the trigger. It just, uh, you know, shoots like an M1 Garand if that helps. Um, which just each time you pull the trigger, it shoots around. And basically, what they do is. Uh, after the war, um, when machine guns were outlawed completely in the United States, people had to, you know, cut their guns up that they might have had and make them into what they call parts kits. Well, there's companies out there that will re-weld those parts kits uh, according to 
federal law about machine guns, and they will adapt them to be semi-automatic. So they're just like um, like an AR-15 or whatever else. And you, you can blank adapt those. They're just like the normal machine guns, but they only shoot one round each time you pull a trigger. And, uh, you know, a lot of reenactors buy those. There's a few companies out there, you know, making uh, semi-auto MG34s and MG42s, which actually now they've kind of stopped making them. So the prices are starting to go up now too. But um, And then you've got the last option, which is the legal machine gun. Um, and just like you said, Chris, uh, years ago, these machine guns were uh, very, very, or not, I wouldn't say cheap, but compared to what the prices are today, um, kind of has to do with pop culture with, you know, movies and stuff that come out. I know, uh, give you an example, I had a friend uh, who's now passed away. He had bought uh, two Sturm Gravier 44s, STG 44s, for around 10,000 US dollars in the mid 1990s. And now, after all the movies like Saving Private Ryan, Band of Brothers, so on and so forth, fast forward to 2021, they're going for about $40,000 for the same thing. And just like anything else, you know, the, the prices are growing, but um, I feel like it's kind of like owning vehicles. If you can afford a machine gun, uh, you can probably also afford the ammo and everything to do with it. But, you know. Yeah, you're saying your friend, he paid $10,000 for two STG 44s in the 90s? Yeah. Yeah, that, I mean, I knew when I started reenacting around 2000, I knew a whole bunch of guys who fielded uh, MP44, STG 44 weapons. Yeah. And. These were guys who had maybe paid $5,000 for them or something. Now, $5,000 in, in 1995 was more like, I don't know, maybe it was $7,000 today or something, right? But the thing is, is that, um, look, uh, Casey, I, I know you and I probably have, like, sub-impressions that we've spent $7,000 on. Like, a working-class person who is in a hobby can often find a way to spend five or seven thousand dollars on something that's an important part of that hobby but um forty thousand dollars or whatever it is you know there's there's not a chance i mean that that now goes into the province of like the super rich and um i mean let's face it if if you're paying forty thousand dollars for something do you want to be running around um in the woods with it knocking against rocks and stuff. So I think, you know, we have largely seen those basically disappear from reenacting. And I think um, it's sad, but I understand why. Yeah, I mean, these things are, you know, starting to become priceless uh, items. Like, I I would not want to feel the illegal to own STG-44 because they're just, they're hard to find. They were used after the war and, you know, post-war countries and um you know i i wouldn't want to use them i mean maybe at a a, a public reenact like public battle where you don't really it's like a you're not really doing anything terribly crazy you, you know but especially at a, a private tactical event absolutely not that's um it's actually funny i was uh the person that owned those who died uh, I actually got offered by his brother recently to buy one of those for only $10,000 and which $10,000 is an incredible amount of money to buy a, you know that's you could buy a car for that much um, but 
at the same time, I was, you know, kind of considering it because it's like $10,000 for a gun that costs $40,000. I could sell that right away and flip my money. Um, I don't think I would, but, you know, the, that idea popped in my head for sure. Sure. You know, you mentioned earlier on that um, these things weren't designed to shoot blanks, you know. And uh, I knew a guy who had an MP44, and he used to use it a lot with blanks, um, and sometimes with live rounds as well. Uh, this is a weapon that has a stamped metal receiver that was made late in World War II, like uh, in, in haste. And he was firing it once, and something broke inside the receiver. Fortunately, um, he knew somebody who was is a really skilled welder and machinist who was able to put everything back the way that it should be got it to work again but um some months later shooting it again it broke again so he took it back to the machinist and the machinist said listen uh this thing can can't be repaired an infinite amount of times this component that broke is integral to the receiver and you know, you can only kind of weld this thing or uh, put this back together so many times before you're not going to be able to put this thing back together anymore. So he he rebuilt it, he put it back together, and then he sold it um, because it's just it became clear he wasn't going to be able to use this thing as a toy anymore. Yeah, and even that, like that's that's a shitty situation to be honest because um, putting that back together, I, I I have an idea of what it probably was, but. Um... You know, you're, you're absolutely right, especially with those, with the the STGs, uh, literally just a stamped piece of metal that they formed around and uh, around a big piece of metal called the trunnion, and basically the trunnion is what holds the barrel in place, and it's probably what it was that was loosening up, and, uh, you know, they were hastily made, like you said, and uh, it, it's that's honestly kind of unsafe and it sucks that's just that's pretty much a ruined gun at that point um yeah that that stamped piece of metal that is the receiver is what the federal government regards as the machine gun yeah so you can change every other piece but you can't change the receiver if the if that stamped piece of metal fails and can't be fixed again then it's gone it's you know what i mean yeah it's 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 a shame i mean um and you have other machine guns that are a lot more durable, uh, that aren't, you know, hastily made at the end of, you know, 1944, 1945, um, at the end of the war. But um, we see this happen with some other weapons, too, not just with machine guns. Like um, I know you've probably seen or heard or read about this happening with the uh, G43 um, yep. semi-automatic rifles that the Germans fielded later in World War II that are made with stamped parts or even cast metal parts that suffer from fatigue and just aren't meant to be blasting away, you know, decades later, thousands of rounds down the road. These things, there's there's a potential for failure that exists, and it could be a very expensive uh, problem for the owners of these weapons. So I, I own a G43, and uh, I did a lot of research on it, and... Uh, the reason why G43s are actually like pretty, um, you know, they they have a lot of issues in that in that regard is uh, the, when the G43 was made, they purposely uh, overgassed the gun. So, if for those who don't know, 
just how these these particular guns work is uh, when the bullet travels out the barrel once it's fired, the gas from the round will go up in a little hole in the barrel and it'll have this little piston. It has like almost, think of it like a cup. And it pushes back this little rod that will push back the uh, the bolt uh, and to, re- to recoil back. But uh, they wanted these guns to operate on the Eastern Front in the deadest of winter, which if anyone knows anything about the, you know, the Eastern Front, with the weather and everything else, where vehicles and firearms will get frozen shut or whatever else. Um, so what they did was they overgassed it. They didn't expect these guns to last over 3,000 rounds uh, because they didn't think the person operating the firearm uh, would last that long either. So what... The, now, the parts are fine. Like, most of them are actually machined. They just had a rough finish on the outside to save on uh, production. But the the issue is, is they're overgassed, so they're just... Think of, like, when the bolt recoils back, it's under so much force that it hits the back of the rec- the receiver, the, the part that, uh, you know, holds everything in place, and eventually it'll actually, like smash out and it'll explode on you just because it's been under such tremendous pressure and what uh collectors and shooters have done is they've pretty much changed up the gas system and restricted the gas flow just a little side thing but um what you mentioned with uh blanks that these these guns weren't made to shoot blanks um you know with a live round when it fires out the the bullet fires out of the barrel, you have back pressure, which helps recoil the whole operating system for or to the rear to you know help cycle the weapon and fire and keep going. But with blanks, it's just the 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 powder to make the noise, and there's nothing to to push back on that. So that's why we use blank adapters. It it pretty much restricts the hole in order for it to get that built-up back pressure for the weapon to operate. Uh, Bolt-action guns like uh, K-98s and Springfields and Mosin guns, they don't need that because it doesn't... You manipulate... uh, You make it work. The gun doesn't do it itself. So... These guns weren't made to do that. And certain guns... So you pretty much have to change... When you put a blank adapter in you have to change, you have to tune it with uh, how much gas goes back. So if you put too much, uh, if you restrict it too much, the hole is too small, it'll put too much pressure on the gun and, you know, it'll actually be very violent for the gun and will wear your parts down. It could break parts, could break your gun. But if you put too much, it's going to not operate the gun fully, which means, like, you might fire around and you'll, like, half eject the uh, shell, the, the casing, and um, that's not good. But uh, every, especially with machine guns, everything's different um, just because you're firing in full auto. And the Germans actually had, they, they foresaw this happening. And um, basically the way German machine guns work, the MG34 and the MG42, uh, captures the in the most broadest terms, pretty much it when the bullet fires in, in a live version of it, it captures some of the gas and pushes the entire barrel back inside the gun. 
which helps unlock the bolt because it, it has a locking effect where it locks into place to fire the bullet. Um, but with blanks, since you're having that black recoil, you're, you're having to move an entire barrel, which weigh a couple pounds. So what the Germans thought of is they have a two-piece barrel. Um, so it's a two-piece thing system where... Uh, only the back part towards the bolt and where everything fires, where the chamber is and all that, only that part has to move, um, which increases reliability. And the, the Germans also, uh, later on, like with the MG42, uh, they shortened the recoil of spring by a couple coils um, just because it helps with the uh, the overall reliability of it and the way it was supposed to int- Ten, but you got to think the militaries out there when they came out with these guns, they didn't. the The blanks were used for military training, and that was it. They weren't using to shoot, you know, make believe in the woods. So there wasn't like that much. As if they had semi reliable things, they're like, all right, that's that's good. We'll, we'll we'll do that. But they didn't put as much time and effort into it as because uh, they didn't really need to, and. um so that's why there's a lot of like fine tuning that goes on, and a lot of troubleshooting when you're trying to get these types of guns, even semi-autos like M1 Garands and you know Gewehr 43s to work. At one time, I had uh, looked into getting a semi-auto MG34 or an MG42, and I talked to a lot of people who own them, and so many people impressed upon me, like okay. Um, if this was years ago, so I don't know to what extent this holds true today, but at the time, everybody that I talked to said, if you're going to own one of these things, it's going to have to become a hobby of its own because of the amount of tuning that is going to have to go into this thing. First of all, um, it was like plan to shoot hundreds, if not thousands of rounds out of the thing just to break it in, you know, just to get the trigger pull to be less and then once you've got the gun broken in you are going to need to plan on spending time figuring out exactly how to clean this thing exactly how it needs to be cleaned exactly what form of lubricant it needs and where that lubricant needs to be placed you're going to have to figure out what kind of ammunition you're going to use and tune the gun exactly to that kind of ammunition and um you know, I got a lot of respect for the people out there who have done this and who are able to field at reenactments with really reliable um, machine guns. I know it's kind of like a labor of love. Like, they like going to the range with their machine gun. They enjoy um, the time that they've put into it, you know, maybe even to the point of having to do filing or polishing on some parts to get everything to go together more smoothly or exactly right. Um, but it's not something that I think... You know, everyone I talked to was like, look, if you think that you're going to get this thing out of the box, um, like what you would expect maybe with a K98 rifle where you just go to the event and blast away and it's fine. Like, it's not it's not like that. Um, is that is that what your kind of experience is with this stuff, Casey? Absolutely. That's you kind of hit the nail on the head with that one, um, especially like the. Uh, the first generation, I guess you would call. So like a lot of people or not a lot, but you had people that, you know, built their own semis. And then when the uh, certain companies came out that were making these uh, guns for the public, um, you know, they had a lot of problems with their stuff that their design 
um, for semi-autos where they had to adjust it. And even on top of that, like it would, I've never seen one reliably work 100% of the time. Um, they just they weren't designed for that purpose. So when you change something drastically such as that, you know, it's it, it takes a lot of time. And the same thing crosses over into blank adapting guns too. Um, they weren't designed for that purpose, so it takes a lot of time. And like you said, with the uh, as like with a K ninety eight. Uh, if something doesn't happen, like if you're, you shoot a, a blank and it gets stuck, you know, the blank doesn't eject from the chamber. It's like, well, you probably have a dirty gun or something else, or maybe your extractors broke or something like that, but it's very minuscule and very easily to, um, to figure out. And with these, it's like, you know, if you don't, if you don't know what you're looking at, it, it could be a number of things because, you know, there's so many things within these guns that make it operate. And if you take one little part out, it's just going to give you a like a whole thing of problems. And I've, I've, I've dealt with that so much, especially with the, the, uh, MG 42s and stuff just, you know, I, cause the whole goal is to get it to run reliably and at its correct rate of fire and everything else. And it's like, you try different lubricants, you, uh, you know, look at all the parts you, you, I've filed stuff. I've had stuff change and like, um, I've had like one reenactment where, uh, it worked great. And then it started running, kind of crappy at the end and then I look at it and something's changed in the gun once I get home and then I have to do something to that it's a constant constant thing and uh, these guns also don't like uh, dirt when you're shooting blanks through them uh, whether it's a semi-auto or a b-fong or a real machine gun they don't like dirt like they do with uh, real bullets so you have to constantly be cleaning it. If you have any downtime at a reenactment, you have to be cleaning it because it's not going to run reliably. For instance, I went to uh, the Drive-On Con event and it rained for over 24 hours. And my gun ran very reliably except for all the sand and dirt and stuff that was just kind of getting in there towards the end of the reenactment. The rain and the lack of lubricant because of the, the pace of the reenactment. Um, I had a lot of problems with it towards the end and um you know these things happen it's it, it really becomes you know a job of its own if you want to field these things and you know portray a machine gunner and everything else like you have to intimately get to know these 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 weapons and um it's a cool it's a cool thing to know like i i can confidently say that i'm i'm very good at using an mg42 as far as like being able to, to troubleshoot it and figure it out. Um, I've helped out a lot of people who own real real ones as well and semi-autos. Um, I actually just had someone text me about it the other day um, because their friends wasn't shooting it and I was troubleshooting it for them. It's like, and a lot of these things help with uh, literature. You know, I'm, I know you, Chris, are big, big, uh, big on you know buying the books and stuff so i uh i went out and bought a, a lot of the translated german manuals from uh germanmanuals.com and uh i bought the mg34 42 book uh it's very pricey now because it was it was made in 2002 and it's it's one of those big like collectible books but um it gave me a lot of information as long as as well as the internet just to troubleshoot these see what other people go through checking forums i've done 
on the MG42 alone, I've probably done probably over 500 hours of research just figuring out how to get this gun to work properly with blanks. And I I can say after four years of getting this thing to work or trying to get this to work, I now I'm just getting it to work perfectly. That's impressive. You know, it's funny. Um, I think you don't know how much you don't know about this stuff. You know, even like... Um, I've been reenacting for 20 years and I never, I've heard the term two piece blank firing barrel thousands of times. I never actually realized why until you just told me why it was two pieces. I always just assumed that it was two pieces because it had a, uh, a restrictor in the middle for some reason. You know, I didn't realize that the barrel actually has to move. And, um, I just think those manuals are so important and invaluable, even for my machine gunner impressions where I'm just using a dummy gun. I'm not firing anything, just um, having the information about the doctrine about how these things were supposed to be maintained, what kind of accessories you were supposed to have with them, uh, the the task of the various people on the crew, you know, the, the information there is just so, so valuable. Yeah. And I, I, hundred percent agree. If you are anyone out there listening, um, if you were going to go into an impression and this kind of goes with anything, but especially with these guns, uh, you know, if you're going to go out and buy a gun like a, a G 43 or an STG 44 or any sort of B fine, buy the books, buy, look, go into the research, look them up. There's plenty of forums out there. There's plenty of literature, Buy all the translated manuals. I bought. I have like the the operator's manual, essentially, of what you know the individual soldier would have. I have the armor's manual that's translated. Um, it, there's just so much information in there that you would never think. Um, and it, it, it's just it's truly incredible. And it's just you, you never would think of the, and especially with firearms. You know, with my time in the military, it's never the things that you think. Uh, will be the problem it's always the unexpected that happen that you're like wow this one little thing uh you know caused this such a big problem like um for my mg42 i think it was at when we did haydenville together and we fielded in our unit uh the mg42 was a couple years ago and uh in the the top cover of my mg42 there's a little there's a thing uh, a piece of metal that is at a certain angle and it, when the, when you pull the trigger on the, the MG42, it strips the, the bullet off of the uh, belt of ammo. And there's a piece of metal that helps guide the bullet or blank down into the chamber correctly. And if it's not at its correct angle, it won't feed. And I never at that point knew that. And I, I was racking my brain about this and i figured it out later that that is such a crucial point but if it's it i nothing changed it's just i didn't mess with it at all i just decided to do it on its own but it's something that you just never expect um it's it's very wild but um i didn't have the literature at the time and you know if i had that those manuals which now i bring to almost every reenactment just in case along with tools and everything else um on standby but you would you you would never know, and that's kind of goes with everything in reenacting, as far as like you know, doing the research. Sure, the cost of it really it it adds up in a way that I think is staggering. You know, if I, um, 
if I think about just what I've bought as accessories for the dummy guns that I use, but um, particularly for people who are using beefongs or semi-auto builds, you know, where you are, you have to be expending ammunition basically to test this thing. And that ammunition, it's just, it's so expensive. I mean, you mentioned this figure of 80 cents a round. It's, it's like, it's staggering. You know, I remember years ago, many years ago now, um, when I was new to reenacting, we had a guy in the group that I was in who had a full auto MG 42. He had a, you know, class three transferable real thing. And, um, I got to the event and he said, listen, I brought this thing. I don't want to carry it around. It would be good if we had it. Um, is there anyone who wants to be the machine gunner for the event? And I was like, yeah, I would love to do that. So I had a great time at the event running around with the MG42 blasting away. And then at the end of the event, you know, I gave him back his ammo can or whatever. And he looked in there and figured out what was missing. He's like, okay, well, uh, you know, you owe me $140. And, uh, of course, this had never been discussed prior to me volunteering, and I didn't think about it because I was dumb and new. And uh, I mean, I was horrified. It was like a, it was a fortune to me at the time. Um, and I think I eventually worked something out with the guy. But um, no, it's just it is so it it can be so expensive. And that's funny you say that because like uh, I see reenactors who have the uh, full auto guns or even the semi autos. They'll choose uh, so that. It, you know, there's a couple different things you can do out there for the uh, MG34, MG42. You can go to uh, what the caliber is, 7.62 or 308, uh, because there's an availab- a very high, cheap availability for uh, these plastic blanks. Essentially, they're plastic, and they were made by, I think, by the German military in like you know the 70s or 80s or 90s for their MG3, which is a modern day variant of the MG42, but uh, the toss-up is they're not nearly as reliable as, you know, brass-made blanks, and uh, they're not nearly as loud, so it's kind of like one of those things where you kind of pay to, you, you pay to play. What do you want out of it? Do you want it to just to shoot, or do you want it to shoot correct and loud and, you know, the correct rate of fire? It's it's And the way I justify it is I don't feel this thing every reenactment I go to. I probably only feel this thing three times a year at best, two times a year at best. Um, I've probably only fielded it since I've had it since 2017, but maybe under like 10 to 12 times at best. And that's at best. And ironically enough, when it does have problems, it's kind of realistic too. I think you had said it, uh, at one of the reenactments, a lot of the, the later war, uh, ammo that they receive were steel case lacquered ammo. And this goes back to the, the, that book Blood Red Snow, he mentions about it that they would, uh, during bad attacks from the Russians, they would actually have ammo cans of brass made ammo set to the side because they knew it would work, but the steel case lacquered ammo, uh, you know, wasn't working reliably. So it was kind of a realistic, it is a little bit of a realistic thing when your machine gun doesn't work as it's intended to because it's like, oh, you could say it was steel case lacquered ammo or whatever. Um, and it saves money because I've, you know, I've done a reenactments where I've shot three to four hundred rounds, which is a staggering amount of money. Or I've gone and shot less than a hundred rounds, which happened to us recently. I think, like uh, Haydenville, twenty twenty, we barely fired any ammo through my forty two because it wasn't working. 
Yeah, I remember um, you and I, like, under fire, uh, wrestling with the thing. And that was, uh, to me, that was as uh, realistic feeling as um, the times that it was actually running the way it was supposed to and we were we were blasting out belts with the thing. God, that was a nightmare. <laughs> that was uh, literally behind a small cover getting fired on by the Russians and having uh, having the gun disassembled in, in, the, in the, the leaves while we're getting fired <laughs> upon. That was a nightmare. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was fun, you know. Um, yeah. Well, look, I think some, you know, people who don't shoot live or who aren't like gun guys may not realize how much dirtier blanks are firing them versus firing live rounds. Oh yeah. I mean, um, you know, I've actually fired, I've had the opportunity to fire German machine guns. There's just uh, several different machine guns from world war two, the, uh, 1919s to the, um, MP forties and, uh, MG-34s, MG-42s, and, uh, you know, in just in my military service, um, firing real machines, they get dirty, but not to the level, um, you really do coat the inside, I, I typically, I wash my, uh, after a good reenactment, my MG-42 blank gun, I will put in the sink with hot water and wash it out before I actually start cleaning it, just because it's gonna be a waste of time, it, it, it just gets caked with, uh, you know the carbon that from the the blank being fired and then uh they don't like to if during the reenactment if you don't continuously lube lubricate the uh the the gun uh they will stop working because they they don't like blanks and that just makes the gun more dirty because you're just adding wetness to the dirt and it just spreads everywhere sure you know, we haven't even mentioned uh, gas guns, and I think there's kind of a reason why I was uh, not really thinking about gas guns when we discussed things we wanted to talk about today, uh, and it's because I used to use gas guns a lot, and I never was able to get them to work. Um, for people who don't know, a gas gun is a machine gun that has been fired, that has been rigged to make a noise and fire using uh, oxygen and acetylene and a spark plug. And there are a lot of different ways that people do this. The gas tanks can be external and connected to the gun via hoses. Or I know there are some people who have like little like mini tanks that can be kind of integral to the gun in certain ways. Um, and I know there's probably somebody listening to this thinking, well, I, I love my gas gun and it works for me perfectly all the time. But I spent I don't I don't even can't even begin to understand how many hours I spent tuning the gas gun that I used to use. And then in in an ideal situation i'd be running around in the field with a a backpack with um, high pressure uh, propane or acetylene tanks or oxygen and propane or whatever it was and i had these um you know hoses going to the gun so it looked like something out of the ghostbusters movie <laughs> and uh you know i know there are people who have vehicles that have gas guns mounted and in a, in a kind of a static setting like that where you can hide stuff and where you don't have to be uh you know mobile as an individual running around i think that a gas gun maybe could work but the one the gun that i used it was so sensitive even to like temperature like the air temperature you had to have different settings for it um depending on 
what the air temperature was. And then once you started shooting the gun, the gun would warm up. So the settings that you had chosen no longer applied. And it's like um, when the gas gun fails at the reenactment, it just makes a horrific nightmare noise. It's like makes a whining, screeching sound. And it's just like <laughs> hyper embarrassing, you know, and it d- totally detracts, I think, from the realism of the moment. So, um, you know, I'm not a fan of the gas gun concept. I mean, have you what's your take on this, Casey? So the gas gun, I had a friend that bought one that had the it was an MG 34 with the uh where it would the bullets would eject that was where the gas tubes uh gas lines went up and he had bought it from another reenactor and he didn't have that much trouble with it as far as uh getting it to work but it was in a uh you know a, a pack like i was in a um what the hell is my for uh it was in a, essentially a backpack um, i don't even know if it was a world war 2 style like uh pack but it thing was heavy as hell, and obviously the guns, guns like twenty to thirty pounds, like mid twenties. I think an MG thirty four is about twenty six pounds, plus all the air and stuff, and you got essentially a, a tank on your back like a flamethrower. Um, it was a very cumbersome gun to carry on as far as like a ground infantry role. Um, and yeah, I my this is just my personal take on it. Um, I think for like a, an armored vehicle, I think it's okay, um, you know, because the main gun is, you know, what's what's the whole thing about it. So it won't really detract from the whole thing. You'll just hear some fire, and it, it makes sense. And then you've got like the uh, the you know normal vehicles like a, a Kuba wagon, and I think that's okay. Like I get it. Like you own a vehicle, um, it's expensive. I got it. But it really does, I don't know, you can tell the difference between a blank firing gun versus, or a real machine gun, or anything that shoots blanks versus a gas gun, because it's just, it makes the sound, but it's just, it has a whole different sound of its own. And I know the sound all too well when they, you know, it goes, it runs out of, it's starting to run low on gas versus you know oxygen or it's having problems and it makes this like weird quacking noise when it's trying to ignite nothing um and it's odd enough you could be in the middle of a reenactment and then when you have a gas gun uh with all this noise and a gas gun starts acting up it everything kind of goes silent and everyone hears it um (laughs) yeah it can straight up sound like a fart you know? Oh yeah, it's it's absolutely terrible. Um, I get it, but I I think it's one of those things. Uh, you got to think too, like in the uh, in the eighties and nineties, uh, there weren't that many blanks being made by like manufacturers. A lot of people made their own blanks, so I think there was like a need for blanks in the the reenactment community. I think this was like one of the solutions, but it's kind of flip flopped. Where like now the guns are expensive and the blanks are more accessible. But I don't know. Um, my opinion. No, I agree with what you're saying. I think that largely we've we've moved past the need for gas guns. Like gas guns were as a thing that existed when there wasn't any beefongs. You know, there were no. I mean, originally there were no semi-auto builds. You know, so it was like out of necessity, a gas gun maybe is better than. If your only choices are to have a dummy gun or a full auto thing that costs tens of thousands of dollars, a gas gun makes sense. But if there's other options, 
yeah, which there are now, I think it makes a gas gun concept less desirable. Yeah, and um, like I said, armored vehicles, like I that that's probably fine. Um, a ground roll, and even like uh, so, I was at a reenactment a couple. Uh, I think it was August, and uh, the guy, good guy, he owns a Kuba wagon, an original Kuba wagon. He also owns an original MG34. He had an MG42 gas gun attached to his, uh, you know, um, his cool wagon. And I'm not knocking on anyone that owns a gas gun. Um, here's what I will knock on you for. People who have gas guns tend to lay on the trigger because they have video game unlimited ammo. Um, and this dude, so there's three blank guns at the uh, MG42s at the reenactment that were shooting blanks. Mine and two others. And then you had this guy at the, you know, the classic end of the tactical, like, final, the finale. And this guy was laying on... He's a good guy. I'm not knocking for this, but or just him in general, but love the guy. But uh, he was laying on the trigger on his gas gun in the Kubel wagon. And he must have ripped, like, two-minute-long bursts. And it's like, come on. Like, if you're going to have a gas gun, at least use it like a machine gun would actually be used and not have this Terminator, you know, long, long burst. It's just not realistic. Right, it detracts. You could shoot out or melt the barrel if it was real. Absolutely. Like, kind of and thing, it, it, this particular gas gun was an MG42, and it's like, you know, you'd be out of I'd love to see the belt that long. Um it's just, it, it really detracts from the reenactment because you got like, you know, the Allies were moving up on us and it was just this final struggle and it was, you know, a little hokey, but um, it, it was cool. And then you just, uh, like, I'm firing control bursts on the ground from cover of my, my MG and it's like, you know, pretty zony to me. Um, you know, there was this aspect of fear and then you just got this guy 20 feet away just hammering down on this kind of crappy tuned mg and it's you know just kind of detracted from the whole event i'm not knocking the idea of gas guns but it's just got to be used in the proper way and in my opinion with the amount of blank firing guns that are out there now you can buy a blank mg like a blank firing only mg42 for anywhere from 38 to 5500 dollars, which is a lot of money i'm not knocking that but if you if you look at everything else you'll spend money on in reenacting, it's not a it's not a cheap hobby. I mean, just yeah, like, it's not like a gas gun is fifty bucks either. You know, no, these things are at least three thousand dollars. So it's like, yeah. you know, these things are semi affordable. It's just how bad do you want to do it correctly? It's you know, just like you mentioned earlier with the niche impressions that we spend money on that we hardly even use at reenactments. It's like how much money have you spent that on? It's like we just you know go the extra mile, in my opinion, and make things realistic for yourself and the other people there. Um, you know, it's easier said than done, of course, but that's the way I view it. It's like I would rather spend more money on better blanks, and you know, the times I do feel my my beef on my my mg uh i'd rather have a nicer experience with it than you know having crappier blanks uh the plastic ones for instance they don't like to shoot as fast or loud as the you know as other blanks i'd rather do it right and you know have a better experience 
I agree. I think it's like anything else in reenacting where there's very, very few situations where you can take the cheap way out and have it be anything close to the level of the experience that you're going to get if you just spend the money to do it right, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Now, I know, Casey, you've been to some events that are like sort of campaigner style events where maybe you don't you haven't worked before with the other people that are in your squad how do you approach the like mg team idea because a a machine gun like an mg42 it's not just a one-man thing it's a team thing so how, how does that work so uh to give an example i went to that uh drive on con event uh back in i think it was October of uh, this year, and I had messaged the uh, the event organizer, and uh, I told him my my intentions of I was going to field a heavy machine gun, so the uh, MG42 is the Lafette tripod, and at the time we had enough people. So uh, for those who don't know about the way the machine gun doctrine was, you typically had a light machine gun uh, squad. And then you would actually have a machine gun, I think it was platoon, heavy machine gun platoon, which would field four machine guns, uh, so four squads, and they would have four machine guns. Uh, different role than just your basic infantry squad that would field a light machine gun, which was just the gun, no heavy tripod. Um, and I, I, I had, had mentioned that, and um, this event typically goes very heavy on the SS side. And we had a pretty good following for what the hero was. And these campaigner-style events, they were supposed to be like, everyone comes together on one impression. So I was like, all right, cool. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to bring it, but I'd like to feel that with, you know. And the event organizers were on, you know, all about it because, you know, it was cool. I'd have, I'd have good good impression for it, and we have I have a lot of stuff for it. And, uh... Not to any event organizer or any of them, because I think they did a great job, but, uh, you know, a lot of people fell through on the here side, and where we're supposed to have upwards of, essentially, a full squad for the heavy machine gun, uh, and ended up being four people. A lot of people dropped out on the SS. These people who were going to do here typically do SS, and their SS unit had, you know, had people drop out, and they needed people, so they went back to their, you know... Their first impression, which I can't knock them for. It's not, you know, anything. I can't get mad at that, you know. But uh, so with the way this worked is I uh, fielded my machine gun. And when I showed up, I got all my gear out. I checked in. And then uh, they had called a runner to go get an SS squad. And a whole SS squad rolled up, picked up all my my crap, uh, my Lafette, my ammo cans, my barrel care, all that stuff. And uh, helped me bring it out. And then we, we... and placed in the trenches, I had one other here member, uh, wasn't ideal, but, uh, so the heavy machine gun was in placed in, like I said, in a full squad of, I think it was like nine people, um, I could be wrong, I'm just going off the top of my head, but I've read memoirs, it goes back to that Blood Red Snow memoir, uh, many times this machine gunner was in a, a, a foxhole, or an emplacement just with an assistant gunner. So they, the heavy machine gun platoon would go around and the squads would go around in these sizes. But, you know, in a, in a position, you would have the assistant gunner and the, the machine gunner. And then you would have all the ammo bearers and everything else and the, uh, 
the squad leader in different positions. So, like, if you're looking at a very individual perspective, it would just be you and the assistant gunner, and then as needed, the ammo bearers would bring you up ammo under combat. So we were sitting in a position, and then we got word we had to move to a posi- another position, which was actually more beneficial. And then at night, we had dug in, we were in the trench, we uh, had two more members, so we had now a squad of four. Um, it In a reenactment context, it was functional. Uh, I was able to carry all my ammo, and then uh, we were in close contact with the SS unit, so they were, I had a, a Patronin cast in 88 uh, ammo crate with ammo uh, battle packs with blanks and everything. And I was actually able to be resupplied, uh, which also had some parts in it. Um, so I was able to be resupplied. So in a, in a reenactment context, was it accurate? No, it wasn't. But uh, functionality-wise, absolutely. Four members could operate. Um, but when we had to move, we ditched the ammo, the uh, Lafette tripod and some of the, the, the unnecessary ammo cans like uh, my... My uh, maintenance ammo can that holds uh, lubricant and kerosene, the P casting, and so we just went into a light machine gunner's role versus a heavy machine gunner's role. That's cool. Yeah, you're talking about a lot of accessories here, um, and I want to get into that. You mentioned the barrel carrier and the P casting and parts. I mean, just kind of, you know. What's an overview of of what you think is uh, really crucial as far as accessories go for a machine gun team? And then, you know, what what's your what's your attitude about it? How do you deal with it personally? Okay, so I I, I would break that up into two categories. You have your light machine gun roll and your heavy machine gun roll. Um, one being a lot more costly than the other. Um, so we'll start off with the light machine gun roll. Um, with the MG34 and the MG42, uh, typically uh, you have the gun, and then you have the gunner's pouch on your belt. Uh, that's probably, you know, that's part of your equipment. So you would have typically a spare bolt in that, um, some sort of spanner wrench. You would have an oiler. You would have a ruptured case extractor, a, a muzzle cover, an anti-aircraft sight and some other accessories depending on what year it was issued because every year it changed because, you know, the Germans were constantly changing it. Uh, absolutely, you need a spare barrel carrier. It, uh, the assistant gunner would carry it. Typically, they would carry two, um, if not more, it depended on. But at the very least, you should need one because with the high rate of fire on both guns you need to change out the barrels. And then um, for the light machine gun, you need... So the machine gunner would carry the, the, the gun and then the machine gun pouch uh, and a pistol. That was The pistol was his sidearm. The machine gun was the squad weapon. Uh, so actually the, the, the machine gunner would have... His sidearm was actually his primary and the sidearm was the bayonet. Um... Just like in every German, the sidearm of most German riflemen, or all German riflemen, was the actual bayonet itself. Because the machine gun was treated as a squad weapon versus a personal weapon. Um, And then, so the assistant gunner would carry the, uh, I believe it was, 
the barrel carrier, I think a pistol and bayonet as well. And then we would carry, I think, four ammo cans. If not two. I, I, I can't remember off the top of my head. I have to look in one of my books. And then you would have four to six soldiers carrying at least two ammo cans. Um, and also, I think it was... The, you would have for... On the move, you would have a drum that would held 50 rounds. Uh, this just held a, it was essentially a belt holder more than a, a like a, a magazine fed drum. Um, and it would come in a, a carrier of two. Uh, I think the assistant carrier, assistant gunner would also carry that and one would be in the gun itself for, you know, to move for like salt fire and stuff. Um, when you're on the move and then the heavy machine gun would be a lot more cumbersome and quite more expensive so you'd have the squad leader who would have his mp40 with the uh it's a very large breakdown but essentially i think squad leader would have like all the stuff to all the equipment um to emplace the machine gun the binoculars and uh a couple other tools to get you know get the fire and then i think you'd have the Group and Fuhrer would hold the heavy machine gun sight, so the MGZ-34 or 36, I think it is, and then the MGZ-40, which is the updated version. Um, and then you would have the machine the, the machine gunner holding the machine, of course. The uh, assistant gunner would be carrying the tripod on his back, and then basically one back. Uh, where the the third person would be carrying the barrel carrier, and then all more ammo bearers, um, just because the heavy machine gun was you know emplaced and expected to be you know longevity, so they need more ammo. Um, this is more in depth. You got you can read about it. Um, well, the the short version is there's a ton of accessories. Oh, and, and then yeah, absolutely. And then like like I mentioned, the P casting. Uh, which is like the, I think it's, I don't know what it stands for, but uh, it's basically the lubricant can. It would have two cans within it, hold petroleum, or not petroleum, uh, sorry, lubricant, uh, which was typically uh, ballast oil, and then kerosene, which would be for cleaning. Um, and it would burn up quickly and evaporate quickly, so you know, it wouldn't leave any residue. And it would leave a brush, and there was a wooden insert in the bottom. Um, and it was marked P on the top. Um, and then you have like the E cast in and the, uh, I think it's the Z cast and I can't remember, but these are just, these are ammo cans, uh, that the Germans use for spare parts and, uh, you know, firing pins and stuff like that. And then upwards of like, uh, like the E cast and held spare parts, spare springs, little, little assemblies of parts. And then like the, I think it was the Z cast and I could be wrong. That would hold like hold this whole assemblies of parts, like the top cover, like the the butt stock, and everything else. Like, it's really uh, you can really go very in depth with collecting and you know fielding certain stuff and what's you know um, it gets extremely expensive in this case. 
You know, you mentioned like how the barrel carrier is absolutely needed. I mean, I've seen it and, you know, on some extent, I, I may be guilty of this myself, where you show up at an event with your machine gun and the MG gunner tool pouch and an ammo can, and that's your machine gunner impression. But that's not how it was. Oh, no. I mean, at the very least, the three things you need is obviously the machine gun. Um, I guess four things, the gunner's pouch, um, and then you need the barrel carrier and you need ammo. You can't, you can't go without those, those, those four things. And even, um, like the tool pouch, you can go down a rabbit hole where, okay, some people just have it stuffed with a a rag and a screwdriver or whatever. And other people have what's supposed to be in there, which includes, like a bolt, for example, I mean, what what is supposed to go in the pouch, depending on the gun, can be its own uh, $1,000 adventure or whatever. Oh, yeah. I mean, um, I was fortunate enough to scour the, the depths of the Internet to fill my gunner's pouch. And as far as right now, I have everything. I So in the, that book I had mentioned, the MG3442 book, the very large book, um, I... Each year they updated. It, it was like from 1939 to 1942. They have the, and I think it's even the 43 for the MG34. What was uh, in the manual to to be fielded with that that gunner's pouch? And then when they transitioned over to the 42, obviously not not entirely because they produced the MG34 to the end of the war. It, it kept getting updated. Um, you know, things got taken out, things got put in. And I chose to do the nineteen forty, the late nineteen forty three uh, variant. I have everything in it. Um, I probably didn't spend more than four hundred dollars on my stuff, but I just got I scoured the depths of the internet for this stuff. Um, but it can get very pricey, and I can tell you offhand, uh, I've only used the spare bolt. I've used the oil can, and I've used the hot barrel mitt and not for what you think it would be but i use the mitt to take off my muzzle my flash hider on the 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 muzzle so i could so i could touch it you know because i was trying to clean something um you definitely don't need everything uh a spare bolt a uh, something to oil like the oil can that you're supposed to have probably a rag and then like a screwdriver i've never personally have a ruptured case in mine i carry it but you know um i know at the front has on his uh description or whatever for the gunner's pouch it shows the pictures of what you're supposed to have for each and that's uh not it's not like what they all had because like i said they have they updated the versions as time went on but and he even says like you don't need this stuff um it's it's a lot heavier when you carry everything that was meant to be carried and for me when i went to that con event it rained all the time it rained the whole event and with all that weight my leather has actually on the two straps that strap onto the belt have actually stretched quite a bit just because of that that weight and now i've you know um they it might rip now you know it might it might tear up tear because of that weight I took a Panther store, M42 Feldbuse, and this is in an era when boiling your uniforms was actually the fad. And I boiled this uniform into nothing, and it reduced itself into a um, uh, woolen soup. 
it's really different to do reenactments in France, Italy, or even England, because there are countries that suffered from the war. In Switzerland, people are quite open, and I never got any negative reaction. There was a time where I thought, oh man, we're going to really be struggling with recruits this year. But I don't know if it's because people were sitting at home twiddling their thumbs because of COVID. But our recruitment actually has astronomically risen. The Reenactors Corner, bringing history to life. Casey, we were going to talk about um, maintenance of machine guns and firearms in general, but I think we should probably... uh, just uh, save that for another episode because we've already gone over our time and I, I know we still have a lot to talk about. Um, so let's uh, let's do that for a future one. That sounds excellent, Chris. I'd love to do that. Cool. So um, for people who are interested in following your reenactment projects, you have a YouTube channel where you show uh, mostly, I guess, your uh, 8mm actual films from reenactment events. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, so I have a YouTube channel. I'm not trying to be like one of those YouTube reenactors where like, you know, they have a big following. I mean, it'd be nice, don't get me wrong, but uh, my main goal is just to share my my 8mm film videos because I'm big into uh, film photography as well. And then, um, you know, I just, just, I like to share certain stuff just because I'm interested in it and, you know, I think... I also look out there with reenactment stuff and see what's out there and what isn't out there. And if I see some, something that isn't out there that I would have liked to see that I'm interested in, I'll try to post it. Uh, things I post, I mostly post film stuff. And then uh, I, I do try to take some reenactment footage of me with the, the, the MG. You know, I do ration videos and shooting firearms and all that. It's it's more of just a fun thing for me than, like, you know, a serious thing. But, um, you know... If people have interest, I'll definitely post some more stuff or try to take more stuff at reenactments. It's Colonel Hogan film. It's all one word, um, just like Hogan's Heroes. All right, Casey. Well, uh, thank you so much for coming on. I learned a lot. There was a lot of information here, and uh, let's let's talk again soon. Let's do that other episode. All right, thanks. Appreciate that. Okay, so uh, just wanted to say thanks again for everyone who supports via the Patreon. Really appreciate it a lot. Uh, it means a lot. Thanks, to everybody, for listening. And uh, to everybody out there, I will see you in the field. Before we go, you may want to check out Fela Kopf over at german-worldwar2.com. That is german-ww2.com. Uh, where they sell lots of pocket litter and a lot of cool paperwork stuff. And you can get 7% off of your next purchase there by using the discount code PODCAST2020, that is PODCAST2020, at checkout. Once again, uh, and as always, thanks to Mike, a.k.a. Retroman, for editing this podcast. Thanks, Mike.